think one of the strangest things anyone has ever said to me is when a Christian man was visiting here on a Sunday, it wasn't an Easter Sunday, uh, and they said something, something to the effect of, man, you sure talk about Jesus a lot at your church. <laughs> kind of strange, uh, but sometimes strange things are thought-provoking. Um, well, I, I guess um, we pray in Jesus' name, uh, we eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of Jesus uh, in His return, we're looking for that, we sing, sing songs about Jesus, uh, back when there was such a thing as, as Sunday school, we talked about Jesus, the sermons are about Jesus, and I thought, I, I guess you're right. Exalting Christ is what Christians aim to do. But what I would like to have us do this morning would be to step back and maybe assume we don't know why, so that we can see from the Bible why we actually would be people who other people would say, man, you guys sure talk about Jesus a lot at your church. Um, Let's see that that actually is a good idea, and that's good and right. And we're going to do that in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we learn about how Christ is not only exalted, but He is highly exalted. And so it would only make sense. And we'll talk about the resurrection, among other things. He is the highly exalted one, and it makes all of the sense in the world, therefore, to focus on Him and ultimately, grandly, supremely, only Him. So Philippians chapter 2 is our text. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11, and then we're going to step back and look a little closer, or step up and look a little closer at seven reasons why Jesus should be exalted. Seven reasons why he should be exalted. Verse 5 says, chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seven reasons why we should be Christ-centered, if you would, uh, if you will. Seven reasons why Christ is not only exalted, according to the Apostle Paul, he's highly exalted, supremely exalted, and why we would want to seek to live lives that exalt him whether it be in the church or outside of the church, why we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would want to have him highly exalted in our pursuits. So seven reasons. The first reason, and we'll see these all from the text, first reason is because he is divine. Because he is divine. Not figuratively speaking, not as in when I eat my wife's special lemon cake dessert today and say, mm, divine. I'm looking forward to doing that, um, but I digress in the sense of, literally speaking, he's divine. In other words, he's God. He is none other than the one who is, as the Nicene Creed says in 325, very God of very God. Okay? 
Very God of very God. He is divine. We see it in our text. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you look closely there, he, he doesn't count it something to be to be held on to only for his own purposes. He's going to do what he does on behalf of others. That's what he's getting at there. But what I want you to notice is that the obvious that is maybe not so obvious. In order to not grasp it, equality with God, you have to have it. Okay? He has it. He is in the form of God. He has equality with God, but he's not using it for, if you will, selfish reasons or only for himself. He's going to do something on behalf of those he loves. But do notice, he has, according to our text, equality with God. So it makes all of the sense in the world if he has equality with God that we would not only exalt him, we would highly exalt him. He's the supreme being. He is the one. So we would focus on him above all others as the one. In John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas sees him and he says to Jesus, my Lord and, remember, my God. And Jesus doesn't turn him away. Oh, I'm only a good prophet. No, he accepts it. He accepts it. Jesus accepts, actually, he accepts worship. And a good teacher who's not God shouldn't accept worship. And if they do accept worship, that means they're not a good teacher. But he actually accepts it. In Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the Eternal One. That's a title used and preserved or reserved for none other than God. Remember John chapter 8 when Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, Before Abraham was... What does he say? He says, I am. He claims the great divine name. And lest we not, uh, unless we think that, that he wasn't saying, I'm God, the Jews knew what he was saying because they picked up stones to do what? To execute him for blasphemy, speaking lies about God. And if you're new to the Bible and, and you don't have the chronology straight, you came to the right place, but let me help you. Way before Bethlehem, the incarnation of Jesus, way before Bethlehem, Abraham had a birthday. Okay? Abraham is older than Jesus. So why would he say, before Abraham was, I am, because he's claiming to be divine. We should highly exalt Christ in the life of this church, in our lives, in everything, as Christians, because he's God. He's God. So everything centers ultimately upon him. Maybe it's one thing to to sign off and say, I believe in the, 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 the deity of Christ. Good job. You should do that. But sometimes the proof is in the in the pudding, if you will, um, or in the tasting, but in our actions. Do we see him as the highly exalted one? We see him as the highly exalted one. It reflects our theology of believing he is none other than very God of very God. Well, now a second reason uh, that Christ should be exalted in our lives, in the life of the church and beyond, and that's because he is the servant. He is the servant. We're also going to see this in Philippians chapter 2. But I suppose when you hear me say that, some of you, lots of you, I would expect you to think, that doesn't seem right. Why, why would we have a highly exalted servant? Servants serve. And so the, 
royalty is highly exalted. People who are powerful and influential, they're highly exalted. But servants actually are the lowly ones. But when you read the Bible from front to back, let's do it now together. When you when you get the big picture of what's going on in the Bible, there's this servant theme, and the servant theme is none other than the one who would be the ultimate king who would serve. The ultimate king who wouldn't take advantage of his people. Um, he, he, he wouldn't have any corruption. He would be the ultimate king, the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many kings. There are many, that, that, that's the same word for Christ, same word for Messiah. Those are just the words for king. There are many kings, but there's no perfect king who seeks the perfect good of his people, protects them perfectly, provides for them perfectly, delivers them. In other words, saves them perfectly. There isn't one, but there is this expectation of one. That there is one who would come as the ultimate servant, the ultimate servant Christ, the ultimate servant King. And when he comes, he is the one all of human history has been waiting for. Okay? And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul picks up this servant theme. Okay? So I, I'm, I'm reading Philippians 2 in light of the Old Testament. And when I do that, I see him say in verse 5, when he says, Christ Jesus, Oh, Messiah Jesus, King Jesus. Oh, we, we've had lots of kings, uh, some good, some not so good, some absolutely horrific. And even our best kings have failed us morally, have failed us in different ways, and they failed us too because they keep dying. Even the promise that was made to the great, 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 great King David in Second Samuel can't be fulfilled by him. It has to be somebody who comes after him because he dies. Christ Jesus. Jesus is that ultimate king. Then it says in verse 7, he emptied himself. A a very striking way of, of describing humility by taking the form of a, here we go, this is why I drew your attention there, a servant. And I want to keep reading, but just ever so quickly, if he is the Christ He's not only a servant, and I'm not trying to correct the Bible. (laughs) He's a servant, but if he is the Christ, he's the servant. He's the servant. The a servant is the servant if he's the Christ, the Christ. A servant being born in the likeness of men. So he be, he's a human being. He's not only God. He's also a human being and being found because of the incarnation, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he became one of us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he is the humble servant, the obedient servant. He is none other than Christ. In some cultures, that means amen. So I just, I feel affirmed. I like to feel affirmed. (laughs) <laughs> ever so quickly because I, I, I gave you the take my word for it kind of thing I, I just want to rehearse Isaiah and what Isaiah does here um, to connect some dots so I'll go, I'll go quickly and we've done this in recent days as well but I don't want you to take my word for it when he is a servant who is the Christ 
He's the one we've been waiting for. In the book of Isaiah, which is so fascinating, I've mentioned this a lot because I'm so fascinated by it. I wish we could read it really quickly. But you do have servant theme. Servant, oftentimes at the beginning of Isaiah, refers to the nation of Israel. And they drop the ball again and again and again. And it refers to the kings of the nation of Israel. Some good, some not so good, but they, none of them are perfect. They drop the ball again and again and again. They can't provide ultimate protection. They can't provide ultimate deliverance. But they're anticipating. They're expecting the chosen servant, the Bible calls them. And then we all know who've been Christians longer than about five days... Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant text. The apostles use that in the book of Acts to say, it's him. So those kings that came before, they're chosen servants, but they weren't the ultimate. The nation that came before, a chosen nation, chosen servant, not the ultimate. It was always designed to point toward the one who would ultimately provide, ultimately protect, ultimately deliver Ever so quickly, here we go. Isaiah 37, Isaiah 37, verse, Isaiah chapter 37, verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Isaiah 41, verse 8. Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen. Isaiah 41. You are my servant. I have chosen. Again, Israel and her kings. But then, as the plot thickens a bit and things become personified, not nationalized, chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Ah, that sounds familiar if you read the gospel accounts. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 40, or if we jump then all the way, It's also in chapter 44. I'll skip it for the sake of time. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He, personified, not national, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's very Philippians 2-esque. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And if you read chapter 52 in light of chapter 53, you say, oh yeah, Messiah. Substitute, crucified, marred more than any man. But then we get to chapter 53, the apex that we wait for. Out of the anguish, this is verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Oh, the righteous one, my servant. God doesn't say that about the nation. God doesn't say that about the less than perfect kings. The ultimate servant is the righteous one. Oh, none other than Christ, the righteous. Make many to be accounted righteous. So he's a representative for the many. His righteousness is given to those. There are many are accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. So that can't be done by the nation. It couldn't be done by the lesser kings to bear their iniquities, to be their substitute. It has to be this unique one, the unique, my servant, the righteous. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Oh, we know what that's about. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And the way the apostles use that and read that, if he makes intercession post being crucified, he's not dead anymore. It implies resurrection. Okay, I didn't want you to take my word for it, so I wanted to rehearse those Isaiah texts. If he is a servant and the Christ, he is the servant. And if he is the servant, he's the one the Old Testament was anticipating, and he is now here, we should be seeking to exalt him because he is the servant. He is the servant. I confess to you that um, having not learned the Bible growing up, having not learned the Old Testament, having not learned the, the narrative in these things, um, that I've read the Bible for a long time as a Christian even and been ignorant of these kinds of things. I hope maybe the next generation is more literate of these things. But we should be reading Philippians 2 saying, Oh, servant theme. I've read Isaiah. Servant, oh, he, if he's the Christ, he, he's the servant. The one who will deliver his people, serving them by saving them. Okay, number three, let's move on to the next reason why we would want to exalt Christ. Not only is he divine, but he's also the servant. Now number three, a third reason, and that's because he is the obedient one. He is the obedient one. And we're going to see this in our text, but I want to warm you up to our text. Why would obedience be important? Again, you read the Bible, obedience is important because from the very beginning, God has required obedience. He's required that his creatures see him as the creator uh, and they respond appropriately. And so we're to love God and love neighbor appropriately, according to Jesus. He requires obedience. I know that this is the case because in Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul views all of human history this way. So you have the one man, Adam, this is according to Romans 5, one man's disobedience led to condemnation to the entire human race. Because he was supposed to obey on behalf of the human race. But he disobeys, leads to condemnation. But then the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus, who's the second key representative. And through the other man, the other one man's obedience, Romans 5 says... It leads to salvation, or to use the technical word that he uses, justification. And so obedience is key. Let me put it in other terms. If you would like to go to heaven, which would be a really good idea, uh, let me put it another way. If you would like to be accepted by God, it only requires one thing, obedience. It requires that you be perfectly obedient, that you perfectly love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Given what I know about the human race, what I know about myself, what I know about the Bible, have fun with that. Irony of all ironies. You need obedience. The problem is none of us can meet the requirement. Thanks to great, 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 great. You get the idea, Grandpa Adam. And here we are. Obedience is key. We need obedience but we can't provide perfect obedience. Our text helps us to see why Christ should be exalted. No, he should be highly exalted because he's the obedient one. He's the obedient one. 
Chapter 7, in the likeness of men, so as a human being, so he can be our representative, because I checked most of the people who came in today, and most of us are human, right? In the likeness of men, he becomes one of us, because we need someone who's like us to be obedient for us. And verse 8 says, and being found in human form, one of us, he humbled himself by becoming, and here's why I ramped it up this way, becoming obedient. Think, think Romans 5, we need obedience for salvation for justification, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's important that we understand he doesn't say only death on a cross, but even, so he's obedient the whole time, and he's obedient the whole time with the apex climactic point of even going to the cross. But he's the obedient one. And I need someone to be obedient for me so God will accept me. And you do too. Well, I hope you all are having at least like a sliver as much fun as I'm having thinking about these things because these things cause me to want to exalt Christ. No, I want to see him highly exalted because he solved my greatest problem, my obedience problem. He should be highly exalted because he is the one who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, lest you think I'm reading too much into this, if we go to chapter 3, the Apostle Paul unpacks some of the uh, of the saving implications. And I do want to read uh, a portion of chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. And I would direct your attention there, where the Apostle Paul has more than a sliver of uh, enthusiasm and joy over these things because they affect him. It says in chapter 3, verse 9, And be found in him, that is in Christ, united to him by faith. Notice what he says in verse 9, Not having a righteousness, if it helps you to simplify, not having an obedience of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, if it helps you, the obedience from God. So notice it's provided graciously from God. So there is the requirement, but it, the Apostle Paul knows he's not going to be able to meet the requirement himself, but it does come from God. Then keep going where it says in verse 9, that depends on faith. That is faith in the substitute, faith in Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what we're looking for. We want the power of the resurrection. Well, how, where does that, how, how does that happen? Well, it happens by faith. In, by faith in who? By faith in Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the obedient one. How can I be guaranteed resurrection? If I have perfect obedience. The wages of sin is death. So how do I avoid death? I avoid sin and I have perfect obedience. Where's that going to come from? It's going to come from God giving it to me through His obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, son. It's extraordinary. Highly exalted. What, I mean, what are we all trying to do? In one sense, we're all trying to cheat death. And yet we know no one gets out alive. Resurrection. Where does resurrection come from? Perfect obedience? Well, I'm in trouble. 
God graciously provides obedience through a substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous. It doesn't get any better than that. It's extraordinary. Resurrection. Then he, he does say, and may share in his sufferings. Jesus suffered. The Apostle Paul is suffering because he's proclaiming this good news message that not everybody wants to hear. Becoming like him in his death might mean martyr death. He's expecting martyr death even because of his commitment to Christ and the good news of salvation in Christ. Then verse 11 says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I love it that he puts it that way. It's like a statement of desperation. I will do anything possible to cheat death. And the answer is not in the workout program. It's not going to come from a dietitian. It's not going to come from the med center. It's not going to come from any of these things. It's not going to come from trying to be a good person. And the list could go on and on and on. I will do anything, he's saying. Well, he's already spelled out for us what it is that needs to be done. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. How can you be raised from the dead? You've got to look to Christ. He's your only hope. I love the way he puts it. By any means possible, he's already spelled out what the means are. It's, it's wonderful. Resurrection from the dead in Christ because he's the one who has been raised from the dead. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Jesus should be exalted by us because number four, he is exalted. This is a funny one. It's not really funny, but I'm trying to state the obvious. We as a church should be seeking to exalt Christ. You as an individual should be seeking to exalt Christ. Whether you're here or somewhere else, we should be seeking to exalt Christ. Why? Because he's exalted. And it would just be sane. The ultimate insanity is to go against reality or to go against the truth. I I read not too long ago about something called veritophobia. It was at phobia.com, but I think they've taken that website down. I checked yesterday, couldn't find it. But nevertheless, veritophobia, from veritas, the Latin word for truth, truth fear. Well, a lot of people seem to have veritophobia. The truth is, he's highly exalted. He's been highly exalted. So, let's get with the program um, and seek to have him exalted in our midst and in our lives Because he has, the text says in verse 9, God has highly exalted him, which implies resurrection, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So, in other words, let's get with the program. I'm, I'm out of touch with reality when I'm not seeking to have Christ exalted. I'm 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 out of touch. While I was looking at veritophobia, um, I did learn about theologicophobia, the fear of theology. How about that? Um, the fear of theology is often escalated when an individual considers the implications of faith. My prayer for you is that you would not have theologicophobia. But if you do, they did help us to know that some symptoms include uh, air hunger, trembling, elevated heart rates, weeping, screaming, anger, and nausea. (laughs) Where else are you going to hear that on Easter Sunday? Um, 
God has highly exalted his son. It only makes sense that we would seek to have him highly exalted. It only makes sense. Okay, let's do number five. Number five, Jesus is to be exalted because he will be universally exalted. He will be universally exalted. We see this in verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Some translations will say shall bow as in legalese because that's the idea. It's not a perhaps this might happen. This is what will happen. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, will bow, shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So notice what he does. As high as you can go, as low as you can go, as broad as you can go. This is a universal, it's an absolute universal. One day everyone will acknowledge Jesus for who he is. Doesn't mean everyone will acknowledge him as their savior. Everyone will acknowledge him for who he is. There will come a day when that happens. Out of love and kindness and compassion, I would want to tell you and plead with you to believe in the Lord Jesus so that he might not only be your Lord, but so that he would be your Savior, Advocate, Substitute. Because there is a day of reckoning. We're not going there, but in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul points out the fact that Jesus being raised from the dead proves that there is a day of judgment coming and he's going to be the judge. One day, everyone will acknowledge it. As a Christian, I don't think I'm better than people who aren't Christians. But I think the one I'm putting my faith in is the only resurrected one who has the power over sin and death. And so I say to you, if you're not a Christian, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And if you don't in this life, one day you will. But it won't be for salvation. Better to trust in him now. Number six, we're doing seven of these. Number six, Jesus is to be exalted because he glorifies the Father. This one is rather simple and profound. He glorifies the Father. Verse 10 says, to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. The Father sends the Son to redeem those he's entrusted to him. The Son does it. The Son is perfect in all the things that he does. And he does all things for the glory of God. He's the one who perfectly, whether he ate, drank, or whatever he did, he did all to the glory of God the Father. The Father says of his Son what he's never said of anyone else. He says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So he should be highly exalted because he and he alone as the loyal, faithful, servant, obedient son does everything right to glorify the Father. But I'm reminding you here today that he also does this as our representative if you trust in him. Okay, finally, number seven. Jesus is to be exalted because he is the source of our spiritual fruitfulness. He is the source of our spiritual fruitfulness. I skipped emphasizing the beginning of our text in verse 5. And I want to come back around to it. I skipped it on purpose because I wanted our emphasis to be on the, the theology, if you will, the significance of who Jesus is, and that's why he's exalted. And so I, I ignored the beginning, but now I want to come back around to the beginning where he says something to this effect. Have... 
depending on the translation you memorized it in, have this mindset in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Or have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain his humility. So this opens up with a stress on the ethical. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Christian, and Christian boys and girls, we of all people shouldn't be the people who are prideful and arrogant and I'm such a good person because I'm a Christian. Look at me. In actuality, we should say, Jesus, when he came to earth, humbled himself to the point of suffering greatly. We don't suffer for, for, for paying for our sins. He did that for us. But we do follow his example of humility. And I remind you, he's not exalted until he dies and is resurrected and ascends. And it's the same for us as Christians. We will not be exalted until we die and are resurrected and ascend with him. We will be exalted. Now, again, not exactly like him because he's unique, but appropriately so because we are heirs. We do belong to the king. We are in the family. But it's because of him. So in the meantime, we're seeking to live humbly. We're, we're, we're seeking to walk carefully. We're seeking to, to, to do what's right and serving other people. But I want you to know that the source of that actually, the source of the humility he's pushing for, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, it doesn't come from you. Ultimately, it comes because you're united to him and you've been given his spirit and now you want to pursue Christ-likeness because you're operating out of a place of safety. You're operating out of a place of blessedness and giftedness and God's grace in your life. We of all people shouldn't be prideful. We of all people should say, any good that I do comes because I've been united to Him by faith. Before we're done, I would like you to turn to chapter 1, and this is a good cross-reference to what we're doing here. It's his prayer in Philippians 1. Oftentimes in these letters, these, these letters in the New Testament, what you, end up what you end up seeing is sometimes in the prayer, you have a preview of the whole thing. It's like it's concentrated, uh, and maybe you don't see it until you read the rest of the book, and then you go back and read the prayer, and you say, oh, it was kind of all there in, the, in this super, super concentrated form. And I'm going to suggest I think that's true in Philippians 1. The prayer is 1, 9 to 11. Just look at verse 11 with me, if you would, where he does say, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit that righteousness produces is how I'm taking it. So, things like humility, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Well, where did that come from? It came from your righteous standing in Christ. It came from, from your position in Christ. It's the fruit of righteousness. So, Christians should be humble. Some of you came today looking for commands. I'll tell you that. Be humble. But, which is a reality. Be humble because Christ is humble. But don't take that in isolation of the fact that you're united to him by faith. His obedience, his righteousness is credited to you. God has accepted you. And we could read between the lines. 
He's given you His Spirit, which is where the fruit comes from, comes from according to Galatians 5. But this is the fruit of new life in Christ. Okay? And fruit is good, and fruit should be pursued. But it is the fruit of righteousness. It's not the fruit of, Pat is such a good person, and look at him. Actually, any good that I do or you do as a Christian is ultimately going to come back to Christ, and we're going to say, He is highly exalted because even the good things that are in my life ultimately come from Him. Good stuff as far as the Lord Jesus Christ. A friend of mine said to me today, they wanted to encourage me. They said, great sermon. I said, better Savior. I'm so thankful that salvation doesn't, doesn't depend on good sermons or great sermons because I've preached some real doozies. <laughs> What I'm trying to do this morning is to encourage you to exalt Christ because He's exalted. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, thank You so much for this morning. Thank You for our time together. Thank thank You for the uniqueness that is the body of Christ where around the world men and women and boys and girls gather to feed upon His words. And we're thankful for the words of Christ and we're thankful for His apostles. We're thankful for the church and what you're doing in the world. We look forward to the day when we see Christ and are made like Him and no longer struggle. In the meantime, give us big hearts, big hearts for your glory and for your honor and for the good of other people, their ultimate good, even in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.